the book of Job this evening. If you join me in chapter 1 as we continue on in our series that we started this morning. If you weren't with us this morning, we're starting to explore the life of this, this Saint Job. And we talked about him this morning, that we talked about a whole different things about that individual. That he's an amazing person. We talked about his rich uh, blessings, his reputation, his, re- his being real in his life, his reverence, and all those different factors. And so what I made a comment to, and I wanted to just highlight again, is that as we go through his story, we would find that he is one of the most amazing Old Testament characters. And in fact, we learn about him, and I alluded to this this morning, in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel talks about Job as well. And he makes this statement. Now, understand the setting. Ezekiel is talking to the land of Israel to the Jews and saying that you have, uh, have disobeyed the Lord. That's why the Lord has taken you out of the land. And in that context, God speaks up and says, though these three men, if Noah, if Daniel, if Job were here now, if they were speaking and they were pleading that we would get our land back at this moment, he says they should deliver no one else but their own souls by their own righteousness. So God later on even comments about Job being a wonderful testimony and it's known for generation after generation. Now, why did God do this? Why do we hear about him? Why is he living in such a life that God is able to brag on him? It's and, and gives us that information. I think it's important to the rest of the story. Because in the rest of the story that you know, if you've heard anything about Job, Job in the next couple chapters is going to lose everything. He's going to be attacked by Satan. He's going to lose absolutely everything. His family, his possessions, and even his own health. And what God wants to set up at the very beginning is for you and I to understand and know this, that it isn't because Job was a bad guy. Because oftentimes people think, think this, bad things happen because people are bad. And that's not the case with Job. It's not at all that, that all of a sudden it's a result of something he's done. It starts off with the story that he's a good guy. He's right with God, and the trials come even to good people. Now, what we do as we go through the story, it's an interesting element if you were able to study it and do this and take it. By the way, if you want to get your most out of the book of Job, a lot of you said afterwards, boy, I've read the book and it seems confusing. May I make a couple suggestions? Is read multiple different translations, especially of the book of Job, where you're in that poetic literature. You're going to get a wide variety of different, different ways of translation. That is helpful. Number two, read as much as you can in one setting. Don't just read a chapter and then stop. To get the flow of the story, it is conversations. You give the first two chapters, tell us what happened, and then the bulk of the book, 30-some chapters, is dealing with people bantering back and forth, why did this, why did this happen to Job? And if you stop, you know, just short and just take it, just one little paragraph at a time, you're, you're going to lose the continuity, the flow of a conversation. And so listen to it, read it through, and what I found to be extremely helpful over the last month and a half is try to read the book every day and read all the chapters and get a whole flow of it in order to just get just permeated with the conversation. It makes a huge difference, just a phenomenal difference by reading it in, in a setting to get the full story. Now, when you start reading it, as you're reading it through, it starts off the first two chapters, how it, this phrase repeats. I put it up here. There was a man. Then all of a sudden, there's a shift. There was a day. Then there's another shift. There was a day when. And then there's another shift, and it's the third, fourth one that all of a sudden, again, there was a day. It's almost as if what he's doing is, to help us to understand it, is setting up a play, setting up a drama, um, setting up a, a theatrical presentation. And all of a sudden, we get stage, we, the stage curtain opens, and we get the first scene. The first scene is Job talking about what type of guy is get all the background information. Then 
we open with scene number two. And when scene number two, the curtain comes back, we find out what's going on in heaven. While Job is living on earth, what is happening in heaven? And that is these next few verses when we start reading the book. And if you open it up to Job chapter 1, you start reading, starting with verse 6 down through verse 12, you get God sitting in heaven and God is having a conversation. Job doesn't know the conversation is going on. Job is busy with the farm. He's busy with the kids. He's praying. He's doing his things. But in the same time, up in heaven, here's what we read is happening. We read that, number one, we lo- we've known already that God is watching everything that is going on. That's those first few verses. God is seeing from heaven. He is totally observant of how Job has lived and how Job's family was doing and how Job was, was honoring him. Totally aware of that. So we know this, that God in heaven is seeing all that's going on. Now the second thing that we see is in that second group of verses, that second scene that God is supervising. That God is controlling. God is, is calling in, in this time, calling the angels in to give account. Let's pick up the story in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, where were you? It's not like God lost Satan. But he's getting him to, to uh, admit, tell what's going on. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect, an upright man, one that fears God, one that escheweth evil or shuns it? Then Satan said to God, Ah, does Job fear God for no reason at all? Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the, in the land. But put forth now your hand, touch all that he has, and he's going to curse you. He's going to curse you to your face. And the Lord said, hmm, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon him put not forth your hand. So Satan immediately is the idea. Anxiously went forth from the presence of the Lord. So we have God supervising. He's calling the angels in. The angels are giving an account. And when he does that, we are introduced to the third major player in this story. You have Job, the, the one character on earth. You have God, who is the main character of the story and how he reacts. And now we've been introduced to Satan. Satan's there and he's coming and as the story unfolds, Satan becomes a major player. He's very involved. Now, he disappears from the conversation through most of the book. But he's a role player. He's an active participant in the very beginning. But the reason he kind of loses out in being talked about in the rest of the book is because people don't usually get mad at Satan for what goes bad. Who do they get mad at? They get mad at God. It's an interesting element of how we respond. And so what we learn in this scene is some information that we want to just pause and look at because he's a role player and remind ourselves from this text, what does this teach us about Satan in his relationship to people and relationship to God? It's revealed there. A lot of information is revealed. Let's let's just highlight a few things about Satan tonight. Let's highlight that he's real. Okay? Contrary to what people think, he's real. Fourteen times he's brought up in this, in this first couple chapters that he's mentioned. This individual, if, if he's not real, God is talking to a figment. Then that gets us to question God's sanity. 
And God is having a conversation with Satan. God is in communication with him. He's a real being who can think, who can move, who has a will. He's an individual who is created with abilities and powers and mobility. And he's not just some thought. He's not just some force out there. He's an individual, a created being. He is real. The other thing that stands out in this is he's an angel. He's an angel. The, the text talks about the sons of God coming. Now, if you were to check and take your Bible and run all the way to chapter 38, you will see that he talks about the sons of God, a phrase, how they were there when God was first creating, how they were in the stars watching. The reference is a phrase. It's a, it's a term that he uses in reference to the, to the that woke you up, didn't it? Okay. There's, it's an individual or a phrase that's talking about this, the angels in heaven. And so here you have have in this passage, it's talking about him being one of those angels, the sons of God that come. In fact, he is called, as the term that we read in Ezekiel, when he's described as an angel, he's given a, a, a certain grouping of angels. Like we have groupings in the world. There's the Americans, there's the Europeans, there's the Asians. We have these major groupings. Within the angels, they had groupings too. The one, the one group that he's a part of is the cherubs or the cherubim. The cherubim. They show up in Scripture, and there's several different times that they show up that give us an idea of what type of angels they were. They were angels who were the ones in the Garden of Eden, that when they were cast out of Eden, that God put angels to block Adam and Eve from going back in. It was cherubim. Two, two of them. The I am is the plural form in the Hebrew language. And so the cherubs or the cherubim are put there to be able to hold back, to protect Adam and Eve from going back into the garden. These are the ones that when, when he made the Ark of the Covenant, there's two different angels that are on top of the Ark or statues of angels and their wings come above and uh, part of that Ark, they were cherubim. Those were the type of angels that were there, uh, that did that, uh, that were mimicked. Uh, I didn't realize, this is one of my, my new thoughts that, uh, that in studying Scripture, that when Solomon made the temple, that Solomon, on the inside and the outside of the temple, he put a lot of carvings throughout the temple, the walls. They were of cherubim. And within the holy place, he put two large, the brown 30-foot statues that were of cherubim that were on the, uh, in that holy place, that they were to remind people of God's greatness, that he is even over the angelic beings. And so the cherubim are, are depicted in a lot of this Jewish background as being some of, the, some of the higher angels that were involved with the worship of God, that were close to it, that were protectors. They are mentioned in Ezekiel 1 through 10 on three, three or four of the chapters. They are moving about, flitting about, flying about. They are the ones that are moving the throne of God and uh, moving it about, and they're fast, intelligent, highly mobile creatures. So we know that much about. That's the group that Satan was a part of. He was a part of this highly elevated group of the angels. It says in Ezekiel, talking about Satan, it says that he is the, the anointed cherub. The idea probably is that he was probably the highest in that order. He could have been the chiefest of those angels who were the chiefest of the angels. We also know that God God elevated into a position where he says, I brought you even to the mountain of God. That, that idea that you were really close to me. And so we know that in Ezekiel, that when Satan fell, he was very close to God, and he got to the point where he felt that all the glory, all the honor that God was getting, he got jealous of it. 
He wanted it for himself. So he tried to exalt himself amongst the angels and convinced a number of them to follow him. And there he is, an angel revolting against his creator because he feels he is almost as powerful, almost as great, though he's not. And so he led that revolt. And as a result, he is this corrupt being that was totally corrupted by his pride, his selfishness, and his envy against God. And so Job ends up telling us in, the, in this story that is recorded that Satan is still an angel. He is a part of this group that has to come before God. And when God says, I want an account, you have to give account. He's a created being. He is not above God. He is going to be answerable to God. So we know this. He's real. We know that he's an angel. In this story, we learn this fact. He has access to heaven. Many people think, well, no, 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 Satan's bound in hell right now. That's not true biblically. It's going to be true in the future, according to the preachings of Jesus Christ, that hell was prepared for the devil and his followers. But he's not there yet. Okay, There's the scriptures that tell us that here he is, he's able to come into the presence of God in the day of Job, be able to walk in there and he has to give answer to the Lord. He's not been in hell. He's not captivated in hell. He is able to go between earth and heaven at that time that the story opens up and even to this day. But we know that one day, one day in the future, according to the book of Revelation, he will be cast into, the, into hell eventually, into the lake of fire, and then he will be there permanently. But he's not there yet. So he's one who has access to heaven. This isn't the only passage in Scripture that tells us that Satan's mobile between heaven and earth. We read, even in the New Testament... We read in the book of, uh, of Revelations where we've given you the references in chapter 12, verses 8 and 10. It talks about Satan being able to go to heaven even in this time period. And to the future of us, he is still going to be able to do that until God casts him out of heaven and for, for the permanency that he is, re, he is no longer allowed to go into heaven in the middle of that last period we call the tribulation. And he keeps on going back to heaven. He has a business. He has a purpose of why he keeps on going back to heaven that we'll talk about in a few moments. So Satan has this ability to, to go from heaven. He's not kicked out of it yet. He's not barred from heaven yet. He still has access. And by the way, his access to heaven has to do with you and me. Okay, that we're going to hear about in just a few moments. So we know that according to the Job, to the story, what we read, he's real. He's an angel. He has access to heaven. And we know he is also active in the physical world. That he is in, involved. He says in this text, when God says, where were you? He says, I've been to and fro throughout the whole earth. I've been all over the place on planet earth. So Satan has access, mobility. He has the opportunity to just go all over this place. To, to go to and fro. The words that he uses is very interesting in the Hebrew. The idea is that he is continuously roaming and he is intently roaming. He's not just doing this, la, 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 la. I don't know what I'm going to do today. Let me just kind of walk around the mall because I don't know what I'm going to do. He's not doing that. The idea is that he is searching. It, it, it's the same words that God talks about, how God in Second Chronicles, that his eyes are searching, running to and fro throughout the same phraseology. That there is a search being made, that he is looking for something, that he is, he is investigating something here on planet earth. And so we learn that from Job, from that story, that that's what's happening. But we know that he has great freedom. He's, he's not bound like you and I are bound. We don't have the ability to go anywhere on planet Earth we want. Some places we're barred from. Some places we can't go because of money or visas or passports. Some places we just can't go because 
You know, there's a signs, do not enter, not Satan. He has a lot more freedom and ability than you and I, and he does that roaming around planet Earth. That shouldn't surprise us that Satan is active on our planet, that he in the spiritual realm is doing a lot of activity. We read in Scripture where he has called names. Jesus Christ calls him this. He calls him the ruler of this world, that he has power. He has authority here in his roaming, in his ability, in his freedom upon. He's called the ruler of this world by Jesus. Jesus also calls him the prince of this world. That idea is that he is somebody in authority. He has power. He has influence upon the earth. We also learn in Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the air. That is the atmospheres around us. So he's a very active player. He's a role player. He's involved. And we learn that he is called the god of this world, small g. But he's the idea that he's an influence. He's a force. He, as an individual, he has a lot of control and a lot of things underneath his thumb. So this is what we learn of Satan, that he is real, that he's an angel, that he is very active here even on planet earth, and he has access to heaven. Now we keep on going. We say, okay, what else do we learn about him? Okay, he's searching. He's looking. And we have to ask the question, what is he searching for? What is he looking for? And I'm going to answer that in a few moments. Just hang on. Something else that he does. It says very clearly in this text. It's illustrated very clearly. He is against God. He is against God. That is clear in this story that all of a sudden he's going to oppose God. Ever since the fall, that's no surprise, he opposes God from the beginning that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, he was an influence to try to get them to revolt against God. We all know that story. That he comes and tempts Eve and he talks to her. That We'll see a little detail in a few moments. His name that God gives him in this text, Satan in the Hebrew means adversary, opponent. Somebody who's in opposition. So right from the very beginning, God is calling him, referring to him as my enemy, my opponent. And so that clearly indicating, illustrating that he's against God. But he, in not only opposing God, as we're going to see in this story, and as he, it says already he, that we read, he's opposing not only God, but he's opposing God's followers. He's, he's going to attack Job. Where he says, yeah, does, does Job follow you because of... And he attacks Job. In essence, he's attacking God, as we'll see in a moment. So it's no surprise that Job, um, that Satan, is going to show up in this story there in heaven as a real person. And he's gone on earth. He's checked out some things. He's come back to heaven. And he starts opposing the Lord in heaven. Before all of God's heavenly host, he starts making accusations. And he verbally attacks Job in front of God. And God, who has been bragging on Job, saying, have you considered Job? And Satan attacks him. Because Satan attacks everything that God is for, Satan is against. And so in this text that goes on in the next, when it says that he ran out of heaven, he left real quickly, he's going to attack Job physically, as we'll see next Sunday morning. He starts the battle with Job by attacking him, him in the physical realm there on planet earth. So we get this idea that he is, he is opposing God. But What really stands out in these first few verses is that his opposition is all about accusations. He's going to attack the character of Job. Interesting. Interesting how this unfolds. That um, he is living up to it. Remember in in the New Testament, he is called the accuser of the brethren that he accuses. Okay, and that's what he does even now when he goes to heaven. And finally in Revelation 12, when Satan finally is barred from heaven, the joy, rejoicing and the praising is heaven, in heaven is, we finally got rid of the accuser. 
the one who is always bringing up the flaws and faults of others. And he's called the accuser for that reason, which demonstrates and illustrates for us a lot of information and tells us exactly what his, his op, modus operandi is. That this guy, when he comes flying down to the earth, when he's anxiously looking through earth, he's looking for opportunity to make accusations. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we know, we know that he even accused God. From the very beginning, he accused God. From the very beginning in his revolt, God doesn't deserve the glory I do. He's attacking God. Then when he gets with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the story that when he comes to Eve in that, in that encounter when he and her are talking? He says these three lines. He says to Eve, Yea, has God said, you shall not eat of the, of the tree of every, of every tree of the garden. And she responds. He says, you shall not surely die. And she responds, and he says, For God knows that in the day that you eat it, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall become as gods, knowing everything, oh, the good and the evil. In this attack, then in this temptation, he is attacking our Lord, the God who Adam and Eve were walking with in the garden, who they, they saw his provisions. He took care of them. He's been walking with them. He's been fellowshipping. They had, they had everything perfect. And Satan, in his subtlety, in his attacks, got those people, with their total innocence, got them to believe his accusations. The accusations against God. Yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Which God had told him, you, can't, you can eat of everything but these two trees that they weren't supposed to eat. And, and basically what he's doing is, you know, he's implying that maybe you misunderstood. Maybe God isn't clear. Maybe God is confusing you at times. You really sure God said this? You really sure that this is accurate? Maybe you can't really trust the words of the Lord. Yea, he says, you're not going to die. He's accusing God of being a liar. He's accusing God of not meaning what God has said. And so in his subtlety, Eve starts thinking, well, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe, maybe the word of God isn't true. Maybe I don't understand. Maybe there's something that I've missed. Maybe God is not concise and clear. Maybe God is tricking me. Maybe God has lied to me. And she falls for it. When he says, for God knows that in the day you eat. Do you realize what he's doing? He is saying, God is holding out on you. God isn't being good to you. God is, being, is one that he knows these things are good, but he's, he's, he's just hanging on to it himself. That God isn't doing what you, what you deserve. You deserve so much better than what God is doing for you. God is basically trying to keep you suppressed. He's, you, you could be so much greater, but God is holding you down. God is a selfish being. God is a cruel being. God is a killjoy. That's what he's saying. By the way, does he still continue with those accusations against God today? Do they work? They still work. They still work. Even people who understand the Bible, even people who have heard the Bible preach, even people who have read the Bible, they can, if they listen to this, this guy, they can start thinking, well, God is just, he's a meanie. God isn't, isn't after my good. He is just being selfish. And that's a satanic lie. So here we have in this story that Satan is going to accuse God once again. 
Okay, that he's going to have this attack. He's going to make this to get people to turn, to turn against God. And he's, it's going to happen in this text. This is a quote that I found very interesting. Satan would have us to believe that God is not fair. Yet we seldom consider the cruelty of the devil. I have never met anyone bitter about what Satan has done to them, but I've met many people who are bitter towards God. Right? It's true. It's true. God gets blamed for all the evil that goes on, but... Who's the instigator of so much evil? And nobody blames him. He's usually left off the hook totally. Boy, is he clever. He causes the problems. He creates the heartaches. He creates the problems. And then he gets in the ear and says, it's God's fault. It's God. What? What? He's just an instigator. He's a troublemaker. And here he is, he's making trouble as he's allowed into heaven. He's against God. That's the bottom line. He's against God. In this story, okay, let's just take it step by step. He is not only in times past accusing God of things, but he mostly accuses people. And in this story, he's going to do it to Job. Okay, which is no surprise because we read elsewhere, there's two other accounts that we read about this, that when he goes to heaven, one of the things he does is he accuses people before God. He basically is saying, okay, I've, I've come to planet earth and I've checked things out. And I saw, Alan, you're closest, so you're, you're the guinea pig. It's either you or Gail, so I've picked on her enough. Well, I can do that. I get Gail, okay. So I've checked out the Newton household and I've looked closely and God... That Newton dude, you should see what he does. I mean, talk about snore. Now, that's probably not one of them that he brings up. Okay. But he brings up, he could bring up something that he finds that he's going to try to turn God against the Newton. Or turn God against you. He's an accuser. He did that in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, the story is told of Israel. Their representative, their high priest at the time, is, his name is Joshua. Not the same Joshua from the book of Joshua. But his name, years later, following that first Joshua, is another one. He's the high priest. He's representing in Israel. And he's standing there before the throne. And Satan is accusing him, Israel, of all the, the evil that they've... And he's got reason to accuse. They had gotten into idolatry. They had practiced you know, child sacrifices. They have violated God's law. They have... And he's making accusations. These are not false accusations. But he's making the accusations trying to turn God against Israel. Aren't we glad for that song that Scott played, Grace is Flowing Like a River? That good thing that grace is coming down from the throne of God. And so here he is. Here he is. He's making accusation. But that's not the only time. We read, as I already mentioned, Revelation chapter 12. He's doing that today. His reason for coming to earth and running around and searching to and fro is to check out lives that he can make accusations against. To turn God against believers. God said, I will never leave thee nor... Okay, if Satan can get God to change his mind, what what has he done with God? He's proven that God is not faithful. It's a blemish on God's character. And so, um, if, if Satan can do this, if he can get God to take away your salvation, to, to say, oh, that's it, I'm done with you, you're no longer my child. Then, when God said, I give unto them, what type of life? Eternal life, and they shall never perish. Then God's a liar. So Satan is trying in the, in the court of heaven, trying to manipulate, trying to get God to move against 
us so as to move God against his own person, his own character. And so he's attacking. And so he's looking. And so it brings us back to that question. What is Satan searching for when he roams to make accusation against God's people? To also look at weaknesses, obviously, that he can exploit. To find out, okay, what did I find in the Newton life that I could also use again to try to get him to, to you know, go against the Lord, to not trust the Lord. So when God starts, I mean, when Satan starts checking out your life, your household, your locker at school, when, God, when Satan starts checking your habits, or when he starts looking about the way you talk, when he starts checking your computer sites where you've been, when Satan starts looking at your checkbook, your finances, when he, ta- when he sees and observes and looks at the way you talk at home, when he is looking at your work habits and how you might fudge things at work, when he's watching and seeing how you treat family members, what you say to them about them, what does he find? Does he find fodder? Does he find fuel? Does he find ammunition to make an attack against you, an accusation? What's he, what's he see? Now, again, Satan can't be everywhere. Good. So I hope he stays at the Newton household and stays out of the Burgraff household. So you keep busy, keep him satisfied over there, okay? But we know that Satan has hordes with him. So this is a scary thought. It's that this is what he's trying to do. We, we understand that this is an evil person that tries to get us to do wrong, tries to turn God against us and us against God. There's nothing good in this character. There's absolutely nothing good. And so we know that he's accusing Job of wrongdoing. Here's the interesting way he does it with Job. In verse 8, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is perfect. He is upright. He eschews evil. In other words, God says that this guy is so outstanding. Satan has to admit he is. He is upright. He is your servant. He is being one that fears you. He shuns evil. He says, you're right. He's that. So Satan has to find something he can attack, and he attacks the motives. Why Job? Satan doesn't even have to bother attacking my motives. I give him enough junk to even not even question my motives, my actions. Job was so upright that he says, okay, but he can't even, he can't even stop with saying something good about Job. He has to add an attack. He has to find some flaw, and the flaw he finds is this. He says that the only reason that Job is serving you is because you do good to him. You, he's got everything. You've, you, he's got the bank account. He's got the prosperity. He's got the kids. He's got the businesses. He's got the reputation. He's got the elections. You know, the reason that he serves you is because of prosperity. He's, you're, he's following you because basically... His holiness is for hire. His piety is for pay. That the only reason he is faithful to you is what he can get out of it. Not because he believes you deserve glory. Not because he believes you are majestic. Not that he believes that you are all good and only good. He is only following you because of what he wants to get out of it. And he's gotten a lot, so he's following you. Subtle attack interesting attack, that he's basically accusing Job of being the gospel of prosperity, that he is only following God as long as things are good. By the way, is that why some people profess to follow God? 
Is that why some people flocked to Jesus? The answer is yes, what they could get out of it. Healings, the kingdom, you know, get rid of the Romans. They didn't understand. But Job is one that feared God. It wasn't that he was after riches and all those things. They weren't the most important thing in his life. The most important thing was his uprightness, his perfectness, his fear of God, his eschewing evil. That we talked about this morning. But Satan attacks. Satan wants to get God to question. And says basically, take away the good things. Let me take away the good things. And I bet you Job falls. I bet you Job gives up. Satan is just... What a, what a bad guy. What a terrible guy. Implied in here that's really subtle is an attack on God. Do you, do you see how it unfolds? What he is saying about Satan says that, by the way, in front of all you angels, in front of all you heavenly hosts, I think Job is following you for the wrong reasons. And when he says the announcement that Job is only following you because you have given him things, he's basically saying, God, you don't know everything. Job is scamming you and you don't even know it. You've been duped by Job. What does that tell you about God? That our God is not omniscient. That our God doesn't really know. That our God can be tricked, can be fooled. That we can come to church and play one thing and be another on the end of the rest of the week and we can get away with it. Because God isn't that great and that all-knowing. Satan's wrong. Satan's wrong. Our God sees and knows everything. He knows why we worship. Not just that we do it. He knows why we do what we do. But God is listening to Satan make his accusation. And it's, it's a subtle accusation that has an even worse attack on God's character. Not only are you able to be scammed God, but he's implying this as well. You scam people. God, you're this, you're this one that you buy people's worship. You, you, you give good things to people just so that they come and they worship you. That the only way you get a following is you get the following by, by just giving them good stuff and giving them this and giving them that. And if you didn't give Job that, he wouldn't worship you because you're not worthy. God, you're a scam artist. One author put it this way, and I'm going to bore you for a second, but let me read it. It it states it so much better. According to Satan, Job is pious only for pay. Job's alleged righteousness is merely a sham. It's not merely a sham, but a scam. The sham is that his piety is pretended. The scam is that despite the payoff, God is not getting what he thinks he is getting. The popular health and wealth gospel of modern prosperity theology is an eerie echo of Satan's accusations. Satan's implication is clear. Who wouldn't go through the motions of fearing God with that kind of kickback to sweeten the deal? The indictment oozes with insinuation, not only against Job, but after all, if God is omniscient, he shouldn't be scammed. If he knows Job's heart, then he is aware of the deception, yet he is paying off Job anyway. 
That could only mean one thing. God is complicit with Job's hypocrisy. Suddenly neither Job nor God look very righteous. Satan's accusations against Job on the surface, they have a devilish undertow. Job and God God are both scam artists. Meanwhile, others are watching and listening, the host of heaven. He says a little bit later, this is a charge with cosmic consequences. If God's people, including the best of men, honor God only because he blesses them in return, then God is a conniver who buys the flattery of insincere men. If God must buy our worship, what does that say about God's own worth? Satan's charge not only impudes God's character, but also attacks his intrinsic worthiness. Here is the ugly underbelly of Satan's accusation. The first tip that the book is not ultimately about Job. In the final analysis, this book is as much about God being on trial as it is Job being tested. Let me read one other quote that I thought was important. This is what is going on in Job. This is what is at stake. The audience at the original live performance of Job consists of all the spiritual intelligences, all the angels in the heavenlies. God wants to display for all created beings the mutual genuineness, the mutual integrity of the relationship he is enjoying with the man Job. If the faith of even the best of those men is insincere and rooted in self-interest, God would be a manipulative, deceptive deity who bribes men for worship. The whole created order would collapse into chaos that follows the overthrow of such a tyrant and a fraud. Satan, like Toto, would have pulled back the curtain to reveal a cosmic humbug, loudly protesting, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But that is not how this story ends. We are not in the land of Oz, but we are in the land of us. That sets us up for the whole story of Job and where this goes. That this is not, this is, this is false. What Satan is saying about Job, what he's saying about God are untrue. They're lies. This is evil. This is evil at its core. Attacking God's holiness, his worthiness, his goodness. Attacking God as being a selfish tyrant. Attacking individuals for their character, for their righteousness, when they, when they totally dedicated out of pure motives to say they only did it for gain. This guy is evil. This, man, this character is just an awful... Ind- it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised he did this at the very early times. We read about him in Scripture that he is called the enemy of God. We read in Scripture he's the father of all lies. We read in Scripture he's called the evil one. We read in Scripture he's the old serpent. We read in Scripture he's a murderer. He's trying to destroy individuals. We find out he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Evil, evil, evil. Liar, liar, liar. Deceit. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by this individual that may be lying and may be tricking because what he is trying to do is persuade as many people to turn against God as possible. There is one other thought I want to conclude with this. He is limited. He is limited. This is the blessing of the story. The story talks about how he is not equal to God. Do not, do not think for a moment that God and Satan are kind of, you know, there they are in the boxing match of spiritual things and they're both equal opponents. There is no equality. Satan doesn't come, doesn't come near God. He thinks he does. But they are not equals in any way, shape, or form. God is so much greater, so much higher. He is the creator. Satan is a created being. 
Satan is limited. How do I know that? He has come and answered to God. When God says, where were you? You who are an angel, who were created, where were you? He's got to give an account. He's got to tell God. He's with the other angels who are appearing before God and giving account of themselves. And he's got to give answer to God. He can't argue. He can't say, it's none of your business. Can't do that. Can't do that to God. Because everything is God's business. And when, Job, when he's attacking, he, he's saying, well, Job only serves you because of what you've given him. God knows Job's heart. Satan's taken a wild crack at it. But God knows Job's heart, that he is perfect and upright and one that fears God. He says it several times about him. So Satan is questioning motives, but God knows the, knows the heart. Because God, how much does he see? He sees everything. God sees me. He sees everything that goes on. In fact, Job can't even attack. I'm sorry, Satan can't even attack Job without God's permission. He can't even launch this attack because you know, there's a hedge bottom. And so only with God's permission does Satan able to launch this attack. He's limited. He's absolutely limited. He's, he, he, he doesn't have all power, all knowledge. This individual that we talk about, this, this is all in this story. This is all about this idea that God is above all. That's, that's the theme of Job. God is above all. He's above Job. He's above the angels. He's above Satan. He's above everything. That he is in charge. That's the theme. That's what, that's what you're going to... I've just opened the end of the story. That God is over all. Why does suffering happen? Because God is over all. God sees God saw what Job could handle. God saw how righteous Job was. God wasn't being cruel to him, but God, seeing all, he's above everything. And even Job has to come to that point and says it and acknowledge it. God is God. He's above all. And that's what holds Job on through the trial. That's what he hangs on to. That God is God. God is in charge. That God understands. That's what God talks about. In the four chapters where God is explaining if I can use that, that term, explaining why things happened. It's just, I'm in charge. I'm God. Where were you when I created? Whose counsel did I have to seek? And so that's the theme. And, jo- and from the very beginning, we hear about it. God's in charge. Job says God's in char- charge. Satan, who wants to be in charge, is put in his place in the first few verses. You've got to give an economy. You can only do so much. This... this, this now think about it from a spiritual point. Satan has all these freedoms on earth and that scares us, but he's still accountable to God. It scares us that he is brilliant and shrewd, but he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know motives. God does. We, we think about Satan, how much power he has on earth, and he does. He's influential, he's powerful, but he's limited by God. When we go through the story, he's cruel, he's dangerous, he's hurtful, harmful. But he has boundaries established by God. He can only go so far. When we talk about him, he seeks to overthrow God. He's already been defeated. He's already been conquered. He just won't admit defeat. He's like the politician that lost the election but won't admit it. That's, just, that's Satan. And one day he will be utterly defeated. One day God is going to stop his shenanigans. One day God's going to put an end to it. The question is, why doesn't God do it right now? That's kind, of, that's kind of like what Job is, is going through. Why doesn't this stop right now? 
Why isn't there an end? Can I give you a theological explanation quickly that may, under, may help? God doesn't force people to follow him. God doesn't force. God is not what Satan said. Satan says God buys people, God manipulates people, that God, that God is, is, you know, is this conniver, this scammer. That's not our God at all. God is holy and righteous and always does good. But he doesn't force people to serve him, to follow him. He wants them to choose. Because that is, the devotion has to be from the heart. Otherwise, it's not devotion, it's manipulation. So God gives this free will. He wants people to choose. And in giving them this opportunity, he's giving an opportunity because the Lord doesn't want any to perish. So why is he delaying even right now? Why does he put an end to Satan right now? Because there's still many people that have yet to repent of their sin. And God doesn't want them to perish and end up in hell. He wants to save them. In fact, he wants them saved so bad, what did he do for them? For God so loved the world that he died for them. He sent his son for them. He wants them to repent. But one day the opportunity is going to end. While there is opportunity for choice, before everybody is forced to bow down and confess Jesus is Lord, before that time happens, there's still choice. And in this choice, Satan's a factor. He's a player. He's trying to persuade people one way. God lays out with his spirit, with his word, with you believers, lays out why they should follow him. But they have the freedom to choose. And the point is that Satan in his rejection, in his refusal to admit it, defeat, is still trying, is still trying, is still trying to turn God against people and people against God. And what he does is he lies. He lies. And he lies and lies. So what do I walk away from this study? Here's the conclusion of the whole matter for tonight. We walk away with these thoughts. God is above all. God is above all. God is above all. Therefore, even though we understand Satan's a force, we don't need to live in dread of Satan. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is. We have Christ. If we're born again, if God be for us, who can be against us? Though we respect that this is an enemy... We don't have to live in utter dread and fear of him. Something else. We need to remember that since Satan is limited, he doesn't know us as well as he thinks he does, and he doesn't know God as well as he thinks. Then when we respond to God in worship, and we maintain worship in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our difficulties, we maintain our faith, our praise, our honor, our faith and trust, we defeat the evil one by how we worship, by how we approach the Holy One in heaven. We need to remember this. God is above all. We don't need to listen to Satan's tricks. We listen to God. By the way, some of the most common, frequently heard lies that come out of Satan's mouth that you don't want to listen to. You listen to God. You don't listen to Satan. They come up in basically these three phrases. Not real. Idea is Satan gets people to think he's not real. God's not real. Or not important. Following God is not as important as making money. Following God is not as important about having vacation. Following God is not as important about... You know, there's things in this world that are important, but everything pales in comparison to worshiping the Almighty. 
There's one other lie that Satan gives. Not now. Wait till later to serve God. Wait until you're an old person. Wait until you're married and have kids. You don't need to follow God now. Just wait until... No, listen. That's a lie from Satan. The reality is that this is the day of salvation. That if you're not born again, you need to get saved like those three people shared with us this evening. That they came to a place in their life, whether it was youngster, as a youngster or as an oldster, they came to a point where they knew that they needed a Savior. And they needed them now. Now is the time that you call upon Christ if you've never done that. Why don't you do that even right now as we close in prayer?